I'm Kafer Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Welcome back to a special edition of In AI We Trust. Today we are so pleased to finish out a year of fascinating and fun episodes with a really exciting, interesting guest, Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, an organization designed to develop opportunities and solutions in education, the environment, immigration, and health equity through philanthropy, creativity, and investments. Previously, Rafi was CTO of the Democratic National Committee and prior to that, Director of Uber's Advanced Technology Center. And before that, VP of Engineering at Twitter, where he was directly responsible for reliability and efficiency. I know firsthand that Rafi is very passionate about educating people about technology and its opportunities and the risks. And we get to hear a lot about this on his own podcast. Technically Optimistic, where I recently had the pleasure of being a guest. So you all should tune in and listen to more of his thoughts and interesting conversations there. But today, Rafi, we are so pleased to have you on NAI We Trust. Thank you for joining us. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you are fascinating. Your career path is as interesting as it is unique. To start us off, how did you fall into this path? What drew you to AI, and to your present position at the Emerson Collective. The story I like to tell is one of my grandfather, actually. I'll tie back to AI in a second. You know, my mother's father started what is now one of the largest radio networks in the Philippines. He started in a small town called Cagayan de Oro in the north of the Philippines, and it's a farming community at the time. And he started his first radio station there. So he put up a radio station in the town square, talk shows, music, et cetera. But one of the things that he did was, you know, the farmers would work up in the mountainside and come down the mountain to go to the market every day and then would have to return up the mountainside to their families. And he allowed the farmers every afternoon to go on air to basically say, I'm coming home. So their families would know that both they're safe and they're on their way home again for dinner. And for me, that's a prime example of how you could use technology to like benefit community, right? Example of public interest technology in some way. I mean, my grandfather was a very successful businessman. He created this huge radio networks, moved into television, et cetera. But at its core, it was about serving its community. And I think about that a lot when I've thought about my career and the types of things I choose to do. I mean, I was a very early employee at Twitter, maybe like employee 50. Like I was drawn to Twitter because of the change it was making in the world. We talked a lot about the time of flattening the landscape so anyone could talk to anyone. Basically, reach was expanded, of course, naive at what all the implications of that thought were, but that's what drew me to it. And what drew me to Uber although I might have issues with Uber the way they had operated in the past, but we could fundamentally change the way cities were architected if you had self-driving cars. Like 30% of cities is parking spaces. Like what happens if you could eliminate that and just had cars come on demand or change car ownership, like just fundamentally change the way people's relationship with technology. And that's why AI draws me so much. Like I've been fortunate that AI intersects my life in so many different ways. Like I built platforms at Twitter in order to power these algorithms that did what we thought were actually pretty innovative things of like giving you the right content at the right time, giving the right advertising at the right time, making it feel like a really great, healthy community. 
And my wife is actually a tenured faculty professor in AI at Stanford. So like my life has collided with AI in so many ways, but we've been living in the AI world for a while and has already transformed our lives, but it will continue and probably accelerate in the way it's changing our lives. And I feel like that drawback to my grandfather of like, well, how do we then harness this to be in service for all of us, not just in service of a few? And so like, I feel like when the generative AI waves are like really hit the scene, I felt like, what could I do in order to help end that conversation so that we see the benefits and not the downsides? Like, how do we actually get to a world where we could live in the world where we have individualized tutors, maybe climate change is fixed, all this type of stuff. Healthcare is fundamentally different because of it, but also not have algorithmic discrimination, not have racial biases in these systems that I've seen in the systems I've building. So how do we get to that world? Maybe I could lend my voice to figure out how to get more people understanding what's happening in the world so that more people could be part of the conversation. When we talk about alignment and values on these systems, it's a question of like whose values and who are we aligning to? How do we get regular people engaged in that conversation in some way, shape or form. So like, that's maybe my long winded way of how I've come to this place. I am trying to figure out how to talk to more people about AI, frankly. Yeah. Wow. So it comes right back to where it started opening up using technology to give voice to more people and making it practical and other calls to action, such as when you were at the Democratic National Committee. I know you said you want to make sure that every campaign up and down the ballot could have industry quality technology and analytics to help them talk to voters on topics that engage them on the mediums that they prefer. So, you know, it's clear that that's a continuation then of the theme of, of giving voice, using technology to create opportunity and involvement. So on that note of engagement and particularly in the political realm, how do you think that AI is going to play a role in that capacity? Is it something we should fear? Are there things now we need to do to make sure that we're on the right path in terms of AI and, and democracy? There's so many questions and thoughts embedded in that. You're right. Like when I joined the DNC, putting my politics a little bit aside, I felt that we needed better ways to really understand what did voters want so that we can properly make sure we're talking to them or we understand the messages. And, and I felt that at the time, the technology that powered the campaigning world was outdated, right? It was not surprising. Like that isn't a way to build technology. You need to build technology with a continuous Bill, the analogy I'd like to use when I was at the DNC was, you can't expect me to spit out an iPhone just in a campaign cycle. Like an iPhone needs years of continuous work and then one day the iPhone spits out. So I'm pretty proud that at the DNC, the largest team in the building is the technology team right now. And it has been ever since I left, which I think is pretty amazing. Like it's sort of a sign for that investment. But when it comes to AI and this election cycle coming up, I think there's so many different angles going on here. So like there's obviously the angle that a lot of people are talking about, which is the disinformation side of it and questions of watermarking and content provenance and things like that in order to better understand. Like the EU AI Act basically says, 
that all AI-generated imagery needs to be watermarked in a way that a human can tell that it was coming from an AI system. Like these type of questions are in the air, especially if there's 40 plus nations in the world that are going to have nationwide elections next year. So it's not just the U.S. that should be concerned or be looking at this. So I think there's like an honest question about disinformation, deep fakes, etc. Maybe I'm less worried about video deep fakes, more worried about audio deep fakes these days. But I think that the spread of information and how we manage our information ecosystem, I think is incredibly important and the AI is clearly going to be impacted there. But I think there's also places where it's going to show up on the campaigning side. I've been fortunate that I get to be an advisor to a bunch of political tech startups. And unsurprisingly, a lot of them these days are AI powered of like, how do we better craft and tune personalized messages for people is sort of one type of it. Like, can we give superpowers to organizers, to fundraisers, to campaign staff using AI? Like, can I do the first draft of an email correspondent to a donor and then it gets tweaked given all the information we know about them? Can I do the first draft of an advertisement that might be run and then allow a human to tweak it? I find that world to be super interesting. I think there's a lot of innovation going there. I was pitched the other day with people who want to do licenses of the likenesses of candidates so they could try to do deep fakes directly personalized. Like imagine a world where Katie Porter is in your inbox and like a sort of semi-cameo thing talking directly to you, Miriam. Like what do you want to hear from her? But then there's also the actual implementation of the elections and where's AI going to play on that side. You know, I've been fortunate to work with people who thought about risk limiting audits or open source voting machines or ways to understand how the election is actually progressing. And AI might have a role there too. Of like, can we determine whether the voter file was tampered with or hacked before the actual election is administered? Can we be looking at results coming in on the fly and seeing, are they statistically matching what we expected them to be? Or should we be raising alarm and actually looking more deeply into how the count is occurring at any given time? So I think like those three areas of just like, I'm worried about the disinformation side a lot. I'm interested in the applications on the campaigning side is making free time. Time is money on a campaign. And then there's the actual election administration side. And I'm also excited to see how AI can help both in a defensive way, but also in an implementation way to make our elections potentially safer, frankly. Well, would love to pull out each of those threads, but in particular, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on how we make it safer. You really got me with the open source voting machines, which is top of mind as we hear about how AI is being used. And as you point out, we think of it initially in a nefarious way as to ways that it can be overtaking people's images and voices without permission to provide disinformation. But we know that a Democratic campaign just deployed a synthetic AI caller in Pennsylvania. So more along the lines of what you're talking about, where you personalize the candidate's messaging to the voter. So curious to hear more about the safety piece. How can we be using AI to safeguard elections and ensure that the voters are more engaged and that their votes are more secure? Yeah, I think there's two ways. And of course, nothing's a silver bullet, right? None of this is like, this will definitely make things safe. Like we have to do it all kind of thing. And so the question is, how do we build a portfolio of different applications? You know, I'm very interested in this world of the cybersecurity risks of AI. Can AI be used to hack systems in different ways, faster, better, et cetera? Can they find vulnerabilities? And then my immediate question to them is just, well, then can we actually use AI to actually find those vulnerabilities? And if so, 
why aren't we immediately turning them to our voting infrastructure to see if we can find every single possible way or at least get confidence of what we have already, whether it works. There's a group called Voting Works that works really hard to build open source voting machines and have been working with a bunch of different states around the country. That's kind of an amazing piece of technology. If you can see the innards of the voting machine, imagine an AI set up to red team against it. And then we can see that it was fixed, right? It's not a black box to voters. It's not a black box to administrators. We can actually see of just like which version was fixed, how it was fixed, how it was deployed. And we can use AI to accelerate that cycle of being able to test against it and see how it was deployed. I think that's super interesting. I'm worried about that disinformation space, but I think there's a lot of opportunities to actually make our elections go more smoothly and go more safer if we just realign our mindset on how we want to use AI in this space. That's really helpful to change the narrative. It is so important, obviously. So opening the aperture further, I know you've also written about the dichotomous nature of AI with regard to regulation and how we need a more balanced approach to the public debate on AI and the regulation that governs it. We had a lot happening recently in that space with the White House EO, the OMB memo, the EU AI Act most recently coming out. So would love your thoughts about how AI could, in your mind, support responsible AI development of regulation? Well, I mean, that's a fascinating question. Maybe stepping back for a second. One of the reasons I like the executive order is it's not just a risk-based approach, which is maybe what the EU AI Act looks like, but more of a principles-based approach of just like, we must go do the following things. We want to live in a world where every single government agency has at least experimented and tried with AI. Yes, we plan to mitigate harms in XYZ ways, but we are also investing. And that's actually one of my biggest concerns with the EU AI Act, but being like first out the door is it's purely looking almost from a deficit position of just like, it's going to screw us in three different ways at three different levels. So we need to protect ourselves in these three different levels. And I feel like they would sort of miss the base of like, but we must invest and we must understand what the benefits are. Like, I mean, one of my prime examples here, and I, I'm sure you know this story, Miriam, but in 2018, Finland did this entire experiment to try to educate their population on using AI. And like right now, they have some of the highest per capita AI startups in the world. AI is used in like every single level of their country. Like people wrote into their class, like who are plumbers who use AI to change the way their businesses are run. So I think there are obviously real opportunities. We think about a mindset of what do we want our society to look like and how can we use AI to accelerate us to those points? And I think there are some clear things that I don't think anyone would argue with, like we want a better educational system. Even if you think our educational system is great, and it is not, but even if you thought it was great, you can't argue that we wouldn't want a better one. We can't argue that we wouldn't want a better healthcare system. So like try and figure out ways to like set up the incentives around actual things that we all want to try to accelerate those paths to it. I think that is super interesting. Whether we can use AI to get us to that place faster is a fascinating question, and I don't know the answer to it. I think setting up this framework where we can think about the future that we all want to live in. Right now, you know, AI is fairly uncontroversial across the political spectrum. So like figuring out the things that we want to be investing in and pushing ourselves forward. Now, thankfully, we do have models for this. Like the EO obviously does it. The CHIPS Act does it, but maybe not for AI, but like as a way like we must invest in order to pull these things off. Like those are the things I'd be excited to see way more of. Like 
Yes, we need to do risk limitations, like Senator Klobuchar's thing around watermarking is probably something we should be thinking about and probably do. Clearly, we need to mitigate some of these risks, but we also need to be thinking about these big investments that we want to go do. That's why I'm excited about things like the NAIR in order to like unlock a whole bunch of these resources for researchers to use and to experiment with, because I think those are the directions, at least, that we need to be going. Absolutely. So you've obviously given a lot of thought to not just AI use, but the structures, the guardrails that should be put in place. And I know one example that you've been supportive of is a regulatory oversight structure specifically focused on AI. I would love to hear more of your thoughts about what this AI oversight agency should look like, why that's the right solution to how, at least in our country, we should be addressing AI use and what you'd want to see them doing as an important and initial part of their purview. Yeah, I mean, not a policy expert by any means. Like, I should be asking you what I think these should look like. But at least from my perspective, AI is clearly both a vertical and a horizontal. And I feel like there's a lot of talk right now to figuring out the horizontal aspect of it. Like, we need to be setting up chief AI officers. Every single department needs to be thinking about it. The way that the House seems to be approaching it is like every single committee needs to be thinking about it. That's all great. That is definitely true. There's domain-specific reasons why we should be thinking about these questions. But going back to my previous things, I also think we need a centralized and verticalized push on this new type of emerging technology to really drive the investment that we need as a country in order to push this forward. And I think that, yes, we need to obviously set up oversight. Yes, we need to obviously do all those things. And maybe there are already appropriate places in government, like with what NIST is up to and others actually set up these accountability loops. But we also do need a place where we can recruit some of the best talent in the world in order to be thinking about these problems, to then use that talent maybe to loan it out to other agencies and to other committees, et cetera, but to also then to help push forward like the big rocks that we need in order to make this possible. I think that like, yes, there's definitely a committee and a subcommittee that could think about how do we get more infrastructure in place so we can be doing more and more AI, or we could have a central group of people who just think about this every single day because they think that that's one of the biggest roadblocks in front of our country. So that's the way I like to think about this. Like imagine a world where you had one single agency that not just thinks about accountability, but thinks about the fact that like, we either need to spur GPU creation or we need to convince a bunch of companies to have public access to their technology or to their infrastructure. Like imagine a world where Google had to give 10% of their infrastructure to any researcher who wanted to do work or like meta, et cetera. Like someone needs to be thinking about these bold, crazy ideas. And I'm worried that if we just think about this as a horizontal, we're going to be focused on the tactical, we need to move forward every single effort in the government and in the country. Yes, but someone needs to be looking around the corner and moving the big rocks out of the way also. Well, it sounds like someone is giving some good thought to that. So thank you for sharing your insights, thinking about what could be around the corner, thinking about what some of those big questions are that we should be taking on. You mentioned the National AI Research Resource, the NAIR, obviously a really important contribution that is in legislation and seems to have broad support, but has not yet become law or become a reality. Sadly. Yeah. And we've seen in the executive order a pilot of the NAIR. So I'm excited to see that hopefully fruitful development play out. I know you wrote a piece entitled, A Massive Government Investment in Academia Can Unlock 
the unknown unknowns of AI. Sounds related to what you're talking about here as perhaps an alternate, or maybe it's an add-on to what you're talking about with the government focus and investment. Why do you think this is important? You know, have my bias. I do think that AI is tremendously important. I do think that it will and is driving our economy in so many ways, I think that will only continue. I do think we're at this critical moment where we can ensure that more people are included in its opportunity. We can use AI to empower people and include people in so many different ways, but sharing my bias, you know, that's underscoring my question, but I wanted to hear yours. How do you think that this fits into the priorities? How would you argue to people, this is where the investments need to be in AI, in academia? I think going back to my previous point that a lot of the infrastructure needed to make forward progress is locked up in these commercial entities. And in speaking to a bunch of academics about this, and I don't want to say this is what they're saying, this is my observation of what's happening in academia, a lot of them have been effectively captured by commercial interests. And that's happened for a bunch of different ways. A lot of the money is in the commercial sector right now to do this work. In the R&D spectrum, traditionally, we would have thought the R maybe felt in research and academia, the D would have felt in commercial. But like we've moved into a world where both R&D is happening in the commercial sector, where there's a lot of capital and a lot of access to hardware, talent, et cetera. That's not a bad thing. But a side effect of that is that we are now commercially focused in that world. And so if you look at all the innovations that's occurring, right now it's like I'm building large language model for X and there's very little innovation outside of just that. And what academia is supposed to be able to do is have the freedom to try the big, bold things. Nine out of 10 of them will be horrendous ideas. One out of 10 might be a good one, but try those big, bold things because they're not stuck with the commercial, the financial incentive system driving them. But because all this R&D is now occurring in the big platform companies and big technology companies, academics need to get that money in order to fund their students, their work, and therefore they're gonna do deliverables that are more aligned with those interests. I want to break that in some way. You know, my wife, as I mentioned, is a tenure professor at Stanford in AI, and she will say the same thing that like everyone's playing with large language models. That's a good thing. Everyone should play with large language models. But the number of people who's working on what's next seems de minimis in comparison right now. So I, I want to help academia sort of like focus on the what's next question for our country, for our society. We need them to be looking five, 10 years down the road on technology so that these big platform companies with a bunch of cash can then implement it once we get there, as opposed to just getting stuck in the large language model cycle, getting stuck in the generative image generation cycle. But what's next? I want to figure out ways to drive massive investment into academia to think about those big questions, again, on the auspice that nine out of 10 will be bad ideas. I also want to figure out how to get academia to think about questions that might be against the commercial interests, like these questions of responsible AI, these questions about algorithmic injustices, these questions about all these other things. I want to give them the air cover in order to ask those questions and like hold power to account effectively, like in a different way than we're used to, like have academics explore those questions and hold power to account. These type of investments are incredibly important. And now NAIR could be part of that. We need to give them infrastructure. We need to give them data. We need to give them all these things to play with 
that they now go turn to the big tech companies to get access to, the government could be providing them this other alternative path in order to get there. So imagine a world where we not just give people access, not just give people access to Nair, but we also give them grants to explore these other types of questions. I think that actually could be a fairly amazing world. I feel like that kind of investment could drive dividends in five to 10 years that would be beneficial to all of us. Absolutely. And it's interesting how you're talking about all these different critical players and the role that we need to make sure we play, whether through investing or just giving space to, to different audiences to do their job, whether it's regulators, whether it's researchers, thinking about what will be considered by the commercial actors, who else should participate and what they won't ask questions that they won't ask either because it's contrary to their interests or it's just not within their commercial purposes and making yeah. sure that they have space. And to be clear, like, I don't think anyone's a bad actor in the space. It's just like everyone has both a role to play and have different incentive mechanisms. So the question really is just like, how do we construct an ecosystem that has checks and balances, have different incentives so we can get diversity? I think that's really the question of just having all the incentives driven by only one of the actors in the space just generally seems like not the best way to find innovation. And so I like, think we want diversity. We want conflicting opinions. We want all these things. And I feel like that's really the opportunity of just how to raise the tide on these other players so we all get to an equal playing field and actually have tough conversations, challenging conversations, innovative conversations, like all that stuff. Absolutely. Well, and I know another key piece of that and a keen interest of both of us is on the metrics. So while we are thinking about the roles different players need to have in this space, while we think about investment and we think about the questions that need to be asked, certainly I know we both feel strongly that metrics for progress, for innovation, for harms should be part of this equation. And we'd love to ask you about your piece, Redefining Success, Expanding the Metrics of AI Progress. So in all of your work at the Emerson Collective, I know that metrics is part of your thinking, it's part of your impact focus efforts. With regard to AI, share with our listeners, if you don't mind, how would you want the field of metrics to be applied in the AI space as we think about innovation, inclusivity, et cetera? I like to think that single metric optimization, while really great in a bunch of things, is probably bad when you're trying to create a society. Not saying anything about my, my venture colleagues, not saying anything bad about the commercial sector, but simply focusing on capital return, you know, that will then become at the cost of what is the question that you might ask next. You know, a lot of venture thinks about this double bottom line, triple bottom line of like there are other things to optimize for. And so I think we need to do something similar when it comes to AI. I mean, like, is it Stuart Russell who has that analogy of just like, well, if you told the robot the single goal is to get me a coffee, it's going to like drive through someone's house and kill someone in the process just to get me that coffee as quickly as possible. You clearly need other metrics here to embody the values that we care about so we can be optimizing for those as well. But then we're going to ask you the question, like, are you choosing to work on one at the expense of the others? Or like, what are the ways that these other goals are sort of being uplifted? You can imagine a world where we think about like, well, how many lives have been saved due to AI? That should be a metric that we celebrate in some way. My challenge to everyone is to think about besides just size of model, besides just the amount of data we pump through this thing, besides the number of queries a second that it can do, like, what are the other metrics that we should, as an industry, as a society, be celebrating so that we can then talk about those alongside, well, it also made a million dollars. I'm like, great. 
and then what's the impact? Let's quantify that. It's more of a challenge to all of us to think about what are these other metrics? How do we then decide to coalesce around them? Because you can't manage what you can't measure. So like, let's just define them so we can start measuring them. Absolutely. And it really is important for us to broaden the aperture on metrics and so that we can help standardize the questions that we want to make sure are included and the people we want to make sure are included who historically haven't been. So these impact assessments that people like you and others are push for is one example of this. If we look at what the other implications are of deploying these things into the world, can we change those into something like the UN SDGs or others? They can be things that we also can celebrate about these technologies as they get deployed and as they get rolled out. So true. I also, likewise, I'm constantly thinking, how do we make it a competitive advantage to do well? So like what you're talking about, let's look at the structures where they are. We can think about change. We can think about where we want to go, but let's start with where they are. Let's think about the incentives and how do we incentivize the behavior that we want to see? So really appreciate your thoughts and, and your work on this topic. And likewise, really appreciate the work that you are doing at the Emerson Collective to do good. As you know, I was like everybody, completely in awe and inspired by the conversations at Demo Day last week in San Francisco, where you showcase some of the people and programs you're investing in that are just one by one changing the world in such important ways. I'm thinking of the founder of Think of Us. I'm thinking about the really interesting, innovative, and almost unfathomable progress through recidivism and so many others. Todd Park, really impressive leaders doing really important work. I'd love if you could share with our listeners a taste of what you're seeing through entrepreneurs and artists, the doers, through your work at the Emerson Collective. And in particular, how are you encouraging them to leverage AI in their work and in ways that we all can learn from? For those who are interested, most of the Demo Day videos are online at this point. So anyone can watch and sort of see these people who are making change and their stories and the action and the impact that they're taking and they're making in the world. I mean, from the technology team, we don't think about ourselves as disruptors. Like We think about more of just who's doing amazing work and how can we use technology to accelerate or amplify the work that they're doing. So there's a bunch of orgs that we've been working with in the immigration space that they have a lot of volunteers that actually need to work with immigrants. They need to work with people who came across the border. They need to set them up with government services. They need to figure out where they're going to be located and et cetera. And one of the things that we've been working on is can we use a chatbot to talk with the actual people who are doing the work on the ground and helping them out so that they can get rapid access to information, rapid access to services, understand how to help someone navigate a space really well. We believe that human touch is so important in these situations. So we want to give those humans superpowers as opposed to trying to replace them in the process. So that's one example of where we're thinking about how AI can be used to sort of like help out. But of course, We've also been looking a lot in the space of, can we give nonprofit directors and nonprofit executives more time? Like we've been looking at capacity building programs that actually just shadow executive directors for a day and being like, you could just use ChatGPT for that. Or you can just use Photoshop with Firefly for that to try to save them time in their day and just help them move a lot faster. You know, we had an AD talking about the amount of time that he or she spends on building a job description. I'm just like, 
you mean like this, they click on a keyboard and a sample job description just comes out. So looking at these opportunities to accelerate the way they're moving forward. And then of course, there's a bunch of analytical work and data work that we can do, like the work that recidivist is doing in order to try to help people both stay out of jail and, and figure out what's the right move for their lives. A lot of it's a data linkage problem, a link together court records with jail records with commercial records etc that's an ai powered system in order to pull off those linkages and try to get a unified view of a person through the system so looking for those type of opportunities we really believe in a human first approach we're focused on how can we make all these amazing people who chose to work in nonprofits who chose to work for their communities give them the superpowers to do their jobs better, more effective, cheaper, faster, et cetera. So that's where a lot of my team's energy and time right now is being spent. And kudos to you. And I'm so sorry this conversation is coming to a close because I have so many more questions. I'm so enjoying your deep insights on all of this range of topics involving AI. But the final question we ask each of our guests, and I'd like to ask you now is, if you did have a magic wand, where you got one wish to help us achieve responsible, inclusive, effective artificial intelligence, what would that wish be? I'm going to go back to my education stance. Like I want everyone in our society to have at least a rudimentary understanding of what does it mean to be both computer literate and AI literate. Right now, when I talk to people they sort of gloss over when you get into technical details, even at the most base level, or they're just like, well, I, I just buy stuff from Apple. Like that, that should be fine, right? And I want everyone to be able to actually have a more honest conversation about all this technology that powers our life and the trade-offs we're having. Like my mother-in-law understands why we don't change the speed limits on highways. That makes intuitive sense. But she doesn't understand the pros and cons of having a ring doorbell at their front door. And like, what does that mean as part of surveillance economy? And I just want more of us to have enough understanding to have that type of conversation. Because like we talk about market forces all the time. We talk about we can vote for people for, for policies. But how are we supposed to if we don't have this base level of understanding? So sort of wave my magic wand. It would be something along the lines of we need to re-envision what civics education looks like for our kids to include digital literacy in it. We need continuing education for adults so that we can all better be part of this technology society we live in and actually be participants in it, not just users of it. I love that way to end our episode for our final episode of the year. I think it's now clear to all of our listeners why we were so grateful to have you because through tapping into your brain, we get to hear about AI vis-a-vis -vis democracy, regulation, legislation. We get to hear about innovation. You're so deeply practical and you also open our minds to the bigger important questions. So Rafi, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing all of your insights and hoping that your wish comes true and that in the coming year and years ahead, we will have AI literacy and better understanding of how everyone can benefit from and participate in the AI world we're living in. Well, thank you for having me, Miriam. Thanks, Rafi. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at 
www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 